Well, how many of you have watched that great uh, classic, National Treasure? <laughs> or any Nicolas Cage movie for that, you know, for that matter. Um, so the thing I did like about that movie and the second one was just, uh, it was worse. But, the, you know, same thing, is that he's following this map, Right? And I always remember, you know, that they're putting lemon juice on the Declaration of Independence, right? That's a no-brainer, of course. If I've stolen that document, I'm going to throw lemon juice all over it. Then they take a hairdryer to it. Have you ever held a hairdryer to your head? You know, you end up with permanent damage, uh, let alone this document. And so, uh, but they find all of this information and it leads them to the next thing and it leads them to the next thing and it leads them to the next thing. And some things are a little bit harder to understand than others. Today's message is we talk about the essentials. This is the essential series. We're talking about the Word of God. And today we're talking about the Scripture is the treasure map to God. The Scripture is the treasure map to God. And this is going to be our key thing that we're going to try to end with, is is this idea that the Word of God is living in active Sharper than any two-edged sword. I won't get into the details of what that means with two-edged sword. We don't have time. That's not the point. The point is this, is that it's living and it's active. Really, no other book, no other document is as active, is as living. And in a moment, under one of these points or sub-points, I'm going to give you a very purposeful revelation or clue that was really helpful for me to stand back and see the Scriptures in a completely new and different way. And it's really opened my mind and and my eyes and, and my heart to really filtering exactly everything I read as to how to see that, how to understand it. But if we leave today with a bunch of information, right, that we could write down on a test, and we, hey, we got, we got that, Pastor. We know what exegesis means, right? We haven't done our job. I haven't done my job. The Holy Spirit hasn't done His job. The reality is, how are you inspired to get into this? Right? Ben Gates was relentless. When everybody else wanted to give up, he would not give up. Why? Because he believed his story. And because as he got into the clues, while everybody else didn't understand the clues, he said, what? It showed me that this was real. I may not have the ultimate answer, but it led to this. And it was real. That means that my original information is real. I just have to keep pursuing it. And nothing would dissuade him from that. You know, that's where we need to be motivationally and inspirationally when it comes to the Word of God. Amen? So let's look at a couple key passages for us this morning. Because my job today is to help you get a macro view, a meta view, if you will, of what is the Bible. And we're going to do that today and we're going to do it next week as well. I propose to you it's a treasure map to God. All right? I remember when I was a little kid, I would bury things in my backyard, and I made a map. It was like when I was 23. I don't know. No. 
I think I was like eight, nine years old, and I'd probably seen my first pirate movie or something. So I grabbed this old junky chest thing that, that I don't even know what we had it for, and, and I threw just stuff in it, right? And then I buried it, and I marked it off from these landmarks around the yard and, and did all that. And then my parents remodeled the yard. And I have no idea. I have no idea where this thing is. But there was something exciting about it. There was something mysterious about the whole idea of unlocking a secret that had pertinence. That's what we're doing today. You have the mystery of life and all of its answers in your hands with this living and active sword. But you've got to know how to use it. Or it just becomes a display piece, doesn't it? So let's start with this. Number one. The Apostle Peter wrote these words before he was crucified and he thought, what should I tell people, what should I tell the church that's so desperately important before I die? These are my last words. This is it. And part of what he says is this. Because there was criticism that what had been written, even up to that point, that what had been written was just man's words. We still face those criticisms today, don't we? And so what does Peter say about it? Peter being one who walked with Christ. Peter who lived miracles. Peter who understood even though he wasn't a Rhodes Scholar. He was just a fisherman. And what did Peter say? He says, for no prophecy, 2 Peter 1.21, he says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, what's that tell us? That the words that were written down in this, that they weren't men's words. They wrote them. They penned them. But those words were inspired by God even though they were written by men. This is what Peter's saying. Peter is about to go to his death for what he is saying. Understand the veracity of that. The conviction of that. I don't know too many authors or writers and today is there's nationalism i look out in the parking lot and there's a there's an american flag in the back of a truck speaking to nationalism we think about our constitution we think about our declaration of independence men died for those documents because of their convictions that's part of what gives them their veracity is it not peter wrote these words before he went to die for what's in here understand the veracity of what's being written here Secondly, let's go to 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's called inspiration. Literally, God breathed these words out. All Scripture is breathed out by God and... What's the word? Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. There's a reason we have this. Is that God wants you to be prepared. He wants you to be able to understand how to do the job right. And so that's part of why we have Scripture. But let's get into some details, shall we? How did we get the Scriptures? Has anybody wondered that? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Have you ever wondered how we got the Scriptures? So all of you know? All right, I'm going to just fast forward to the next point then. (laughs) Come on. 
I hope somebody doesn't know. Um, well, here's, here's one explanation from a humble servant. It's an anthology of writing by men who were inspired by God spanning 1,600 years. Okay? All the way back to the, the beginning of what was written. And I'll give you a little nugget that's not in the notes today. We believe that chronologically, um, maybe the first book written was maybe the book of Job, but we're not sure who even wrote the book of Job. But the events and the writings of it and the history behind it seems to be. So as you see books listed in the Bible, that's not necessarily the order that they were written in, okay? But what we do know is that Moses is the author of the first five books. It's called the Pentateuch. I'll get into that in the, in the next couple points. Those are some of the first books. And so if you go all the way back to when it was written, the Bible wasn't written in the Garden of Eden. Nobody started writing there. All right, That these histories, these understandings were passed on through um, the culture. And the culture was to tell a story. And they didn't have TV or the internet, so they got the story right. Have you ever been telling a story and somebody tells you that you're not getting it right? Okay, same thing. I'm not, what? I'm not. The Lord is my protector. I'm not saying anything here, but you know what I'm talking about, right? And the same thing would have been then, because my first thought is what? Well, if they just sat around the campfire or, or, or the dinner table and they told stories, then how true could those stories be, right? No, if you got them wrong, people said, nope, that's not how it went. And so you had what was called oral traditions. Then people started eventually writing things down. That span of when the first books were written to when they were closed off, probably around the late first century, okay, with John, maybe 93, 95 AD, that's it. And and we'll get into why that's it, all right, in a little bit. So 1,600 years. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. Now you are a biblical mensa. Has anybody wondered why we we do this? 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Does that change your life to know the number of books? I just think it's odd. We get really into that number. But I thought I'd list it for you, Awana people and, and you biblical scholars that love that stuff. 39 books, 27 books. If you can recite those books straight through to me, we'll give you some kind of an Awana badge. Okay, moving on. Here's God's part in the Scripture. He inspires. He inspires. Why? It's His story. We're going to get to that. That's that mystery I'm telling you about that changed how I see the Bible. So His job is to inspire. Not just... Well, His job is to inspire what was written down. And He used men to write that down. Do you understand that what we have in the Bible, it is nowhere close. Even John says this just for his book, the Gospel of John. John says at the end of his book that there are so many more events about who Jesus was in his ministry. They're too numerous to what? To record, to write down. And that's just from one guy's perspective about the life of Jesus. We're not even talking about the whole uh, span of what God has been doing. But God chose a select few events of his economy, his workings between himself and man. And he said, this is what I want you to know. I'm teasing you right now. We're going to get to it. So God's part is inspiration. What do you think man's part is? (laughs) 
What is man's part? You are just like a college class. I'm so impressed with you guys. I feel like I'm teaching it at Jessup right now. Yes, man's part is illumination. All right? And what's that mean? Is it, I'm going to put it in, in very difficult theological terms. The light goes on. Okay? That's it. All of a sudden you have understanding of these deep, mysterious things about who God is. Does anybody have a hard time understanding the Bible? Raise your hand. Because I'm raising mine, not metaphorically. Okay? It is a deep, mysterious book. It should be that way. These are the things of God. And so they're, they're challenging to understand and you can get easily confused. So we're going to talk about how to avoid that confusion and help you learn how to navigate through this. So how do we get the Scriptures? It's just this anthology of writing that, that's happened over the span of roughly 1,600 years. We've got 39 in the Old Testament. We've got 27 books in the New God was the one that inspired what would be recorded. Man's responsibility is to learn through the power of the Holy Spirit. You read it, the Holy Spirit helps you, and all of a sudden we get it. We get what it is that God's trying to tell us. Um, the canon. Oh, I messed up. Uh, the canon. I, you know, this is not language we use. Um, you're going to think I'm talking about a military weapon. The canon is this idea of what is accepted as the authoritative part. All right? And so it's the collection of what is accepted. How many of you have ever heard that Jesus got married to Mary Magdalene? Have you heard of that? Comes from something called the Gospel of... Anybody know? Thomas. Do you know that that thing is brought out? Used to be brought out every 50 years. Now, since you have the History Channel and they need to get people to watch, they bring it out every three years. That and some new information on Hitler, okay? Bank it. I've ruined the History Channel for you now. Listen, the Gospel of Thomas, and I'll put it out there, and, and for those who are from a Catholic background, look into this. There is also what's called the Apocrypha. Uh, First and Second Maccabees, um, you know, on and on and on. There are books that, by these councils and by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, are not seen as the canon, the authoritative part that God inspired. How did they figure that out? Has anybody ever hacked you? Has any, I, all the high schoolers left? Okay. <laughs> Austin, your brother's notorious for this. Has he ever hacked your account and tried to make it seem like you said something and broadcast it everywhere? Yeah. Did people know it wasn't you? Right. How did they know it wasn't you? Because it didn't what? Didn't sound like you. There you go. Our youth, the wisdom of our youth just spoke. Thank you, Austin. That's exactly how they form the canon. Is that there are things about these books out there, like the Gospel of Thomas, that it just doesn't hold up. It, it, it doesn't even compare to the clarity, the writing style. There are huge contradictions to other books in the Bible. Okay, So they're not seen as part of the canon. Do you get that part? That's all I can say about that, because... We're going to stay on time today. This is, you could spend th two weeks on that stuff, and you do in theology class, but this is preaching class, so let's keep going. All right. Next, how did we get the Scriptures? Did anybody ever wonder how we got the Scriptures? Raise your hand. Thank you for everybody raising your hand. 
Oh, wait. We didn't answer that question for you? Okay, we've, we've got all that. Somehow I went backwards. Okay, you should know that answer. I'm a horrible teacher and I get fired. Next question. All right, how to view the Scriptures. How do we look at them? How do we learn from them? Here comes that mystery part. Ready? Number one, there's 66 separate books or letters for the purpose of God revealing Himself to mankind. I used to look at these as their own separate entities and these own separate stories and and have a micro approach, and that was good. Because there's unique things about each book and God's dispensation at different times. But when somebody said that to me long after Bible college, it made me take a step back and realize what the Bible truly is. It's God giving you insight into who He is. That's it. And at different times in the history of man, He said, you need to know this about Me. So I'm going to speak to Isaiah. And maybe I spoke to Isaiah's cousin, Mahalafuf. Alright, you prove his name's not Mahalafuf and I'll retract that statement. Nobody knows if he even had a cousin. Even if he said those things to somebody else, which I'm sure God spoke to multiple people, He chose for that not to be the part that we needed. Remember the, the passage out of Second Timothy. That all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's there so that what? For us to profit. For us to be equipped. For us to know God. And so he's saying, what I have given you here, I've spoken many other times through many other people, but what I've given you here is all you need to know to know Me. It's complete. Now the Holy Spirit comes into there as well, but I just, I'm making the point on this. You get it? Alright, so 66 books that what? They're books or letters for the purpose of God revealing Himself to mankind. So we have the Old Testament. It starts with five books. It's called the Pentateuch. Moses wrote them and the laws in there. Then you start getting into history with the Chronicles and the Kings and First and Second Samuel. And they're just histories. It's the story of David and Goliath, right? It's the story of, of Gideon and, and all those things. Uh, then you get into poetry or what's called wisdom literature. You get into apocalyptic literature like Daniel, right? We, we went through the series on Daniel and there's some stuff about you know, God's wrath and what's going to happen in the future and all of that. Then you get into prophecy with major prophets, minor prophets, and that's the OT. NT, you've got four Gospels and they're really the story of Jesus' life here on earth. That's what starts your New Testament. Next, um, not necessarily sequentially, but you've got the Pauline epistles. And so Paul writes all these letters to all these upstart churches, helping them understand who God is and what it means to live a righteous, godly life. All right, So those are these letters like Ephesians, Philippians, Romans, on and on. Uh, you have general epistles. Uh, that would be like Peter or John or Jude uh, that, that fit into that idea. Um, uh, Hebrews, on and on it goes. Then you've got apocalyptic as well, which would be what? What? I'm going to test you here. Revelation, you guys are so good. And then you have in the New Testament, you also have narrative or history, which really comes down to one book. Let's see how good you guys are. Anybody have an idea? Acts, you guys are on it. Somebody wants an A in the class. You get it. All right, so we went through that point very well. Um, you guys are doing very well. So next question, how do we study 
How do we study the Scriptures? Well, I encourage you to get a study Bible. Get a study Bible. Get a Bible that has notes in it. Um, I'm going to encourage you to get the ESV study Bible because I love it. I think it's complete. And it has everything that you need to study when questions come up. Does that mean that that is the authorized version as some of my, my good friends in this church call it? Um, no, it does not mean that. There are plenty of others, so let me help you understand this. This is a grid, and this is so I get this question when it comes to studying the Bible. Which translation should I go with, Pastor? Well, let me break it down for you. I'm going to use this screen over here. You've got a spectrum. You've got word for word. In other words, this is where we get into the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, right? It was written in those languages. It's not written in English, so you have to do a translation. All right? We have one word, love. Do you know that there's four words in the Greek for love? And each of them means a distinct, separate aspect of how we just use one word. But it has multiple intentions. When you get into looking at the word love and how often it's used throughout the New Testament, you've got to know what we're talking about. So it is important that we stay with a, a semblance of word for word. So you've got Scriptures over here, and I can't read a single one of those, but uh, you've got New American Standard Bible, the NASB, the, the Amplified Bible, the ESV is over there, King James Version, on and on. I don't know that, I, here's the ESV, I don't know that I would put it all the way over here, but you know, these guys are smarter than me. I would probably put it a little bit more over here, but they're saying word for word because it's a very accurate, accurate translation. Okay? Now, you have paraphrase all the way over here, and the last one we've got over here is called the message. And the message might sound like, let's just use, throw out a verse. Did somebody just say John 3.16? Okay, so John 3.16 in the message, I'm paraphrasing because it's called paraphrase, so I'm even going to paraphrase the message. It would be, yo, the big guy upstairs was so impressed with you that he decided to give it up, give it up, give it up! <laughs> Alright, that's kind of what the message is. Alright? Now here's the difference. is Over here, you could have for thou deserveth thy wrath of thine recompense in a fourth night. Okay, you know, we don't talk that way, and that's the problem, is that we get a little hung up on that stuff. So we got to go from fourth night to yo, 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 right? This is why you have so many translations, is because we change, language changes. So as language changes, you have to be accurate, because we're talking about spiritual and eternal things. Don't you really want to know what God was trying to say to you? That's the point. That's the point. So, that's why I do recommend an ESV is because the readability is really good. I recommend an NIV. I recommend an NASB. I recommend, if you're Shakespearean, a KJV. Okay? Enjoy. Don't feel like you've got to... Here's where we mess this up as pastors. The only authorized, that's why somebody says this to me here all the time. The only authorized version is this version, and if you go all, you, that is the gateway to hell. Right? And for any of you guys out there that preach that stuff, my address is 1719 Berrywood Court. Come, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. So, we're clear on translations and why it's important. 
Okay. So let's get back to how to study the Scriptures. Get a study Bible. All right? Learn context. Context, context. Context got me into huge trouble coaching. Let's take it into real world situation. First of all, let me explain what I mean by this. When you're reading a verse that's difficult, back up to where the paragraph starts or that section thematically starts in your Bible. You should have thematic breaks in your Bible that show you. Read multiple verses behind, read multiple verses past, and then you get a clearer idea of what really is being stated. If at that point you don't understand, read the preface to the letter. Read the preface to the book to understand why is this person writing this? To whom is he writing it? All of that matters. I'm going to give you a bone right now. This is huge. This is big when it comes to how to study the Scriptures. It is desperately important, like Austin said, that you know what the intent was of what is written. Have you ever said, do as I say, not as I do, or you know those kinds of things? That doesn't translate perfectly, but the idea is, is simply this. You write an email to somebody, and they just didn't get it. They read it word for word, but they understood it differently. This is where we mess up with Scripture. And there are ways to deal with that. There are ways to get better at that, and that's what I'm giving you right now, context. When I was coaching, I had two situations happen. I'll just tell you one. Coaching down south, girls' soccer, high school level, CIF level. Um, uh, it, it, was, it was some pretty serious stuff. And we were playing against um, Burroughs High. Um, I say that for Becky because she grew up down there. And uh, my girls, I didn't know that this, I didn't know that team because I, I was the new varsity coach. And the scouting report was they had an assassin on the team. What that means is that the coach has found somebody who doesn't really play very well, but is very physical. And their whole point is to get on your best player and get them rattled. Get them off focus with what they're doing. So we went in with a game plan. And that was, we have multiple good players. So what we're going to do is when she gets assigned as an assassin on who they perceive as our best player, our best player is going to go to the far sideline, get completely out of the play, and act like she's tying her shoe or whatever, and just take that person out of the game. Right? That's our plan. So we're in the game. One of my players is as close to me as Ben is and gets killed by this gal. She's already fouled my players like three or four times. And I'm getting some questions. And poor Megan's sitting there in the mud and has just been clipped from behind. And she's just going, what do I do? And I said, take her out. Okay? At the end of that game, the referee ran over to me and these were his exact words. In my 20-some years of refing a game, I've never heard a coach say such a despicable thing. I am writing you up to the CIF general offices. You will never coach again. And I'm like, what? I didn't even know what he was talking about. And then he just starts running away from me. And I, so then I'm running after him to try to ask him, what, what are you talking about? And all the parents and people in the stands, including my wife, just see the ref run to me and then run away, and I'm running after the ref. So it's like a Colombian soccer game. That's what's going on here, right? So I get this 
the, the athletic director, the principal at the school, all these people start getting these letters from the CIF general office and, and all this stuff. And I had to go before a council and explain, and I had to have witnesses from my team explain the context. You see, we do this spiritually when we read the Scriptures. We do this spiritually. There are people who, who want to take the Scriptures and make an argument for their own personal preference. And they'll twist it because they could take a verse and say, oh, look, this says this. But they don't understand the context. You want to know how to study the Scriptures? Get into context. Learn context. Pray before you read. All right? You've got to pray before you read that the Holy Spirit would help you understand what's going on. Next, there's one interpretation, many applications. How many of you have heard somebody say, well, that's your interpretation? No. When you, I'm going to go back to very simple logic here for you folks. When you write an email to somebody, were there multiple interpretations of what you meant to say? You meant to say this. This is what you meant to say. You didn't mean all of this. Same thing with the Lord. He meant to say this. That is our responsibility to figure out what that message is But that message in and of itself can have multiple applications. Does that make sense? Case in point, Romans 12. um, Probably verse 14. As much as is possible, be at peace with everyone. So we should never as a country defend ourselves? Somebody could take that verse and say, right? You know, you've got to understand the entire context of Scripture. You've got to know how all of that works. But use this as a rule. There's one interpretation. You've got to figure that out. So how do you do it? Get in, read some commentaries. Get in, read some commentaries. That doesn't mean that those guys who write or those gals who write those commentaries are exactly right. Read opposing opinion commentaries. People that come from different training or, or different thoughts. Not spurious stuff, not bad stuff, but just different thoughts on certain things, okay? From an, from an orthodox point of view. Uh, also, get into dictionaries. Find out what the, what the real word, word means here. You can do that. You can get that information. You can just Google it. You know, what does this word mean in the Greek? Or what does this mean in the Hebrew? Or what are the possibilities of what this word can mean? Because there can be multiple meanings, and based off the context of the phrase and the grammar, that gives its intent, all right? Discipleship. This is one of the most important points. When you're struggling with a passage and you're not really sure, you need to go to somebody that you see as wise or understands the Scriptures well and ask. Ask, what does this mean? Now, that gets back to where we started. The motivation. The Word of God is a treasure map to God. Do you want to know who God is and how God operates. Get the motivation. Don't get discouraged because it's mysterious and hard to understand. Practice these things. And suddenly the Word of God is going to, as we just sang, speak. It's going to inform you. It's going to be profitable for you. It's going to be alive and active. Let's do that. I'm a little bit over, but I'm going to be a man of my word. I'll take two questions. See how I worked that in my favor? So let's see if it really is alive and active. Give me a situation from real life 
um, just something people would be seeking information or ideas on, and let's see if the Scripture speaks to it. I'm just going to name the verse if I can do it, and, and we'll go from there. So any, anything, anything from life, uh, like, yes, Patricia. Divorce, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where you want to go. It gives specific information about what God's intent is and some very specific things about how to handle that, what it means to be married to a believer, an unbeliever, remarriage. Uh, You could go to, I believe it's Matthew 7, um, and see what Jesus' thoughts are specifically on it. Um, Let me go there and look. Might be Matthew 6. Might be somewhere in the Bible. Let's keep looking. I know, I know, we're working on it. Matthew 5. I was only two pages off. Matthew 5. He says what? Verse 31. He was asked about divorce. And he says, uh, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now here's the context. I grew up in a church that if anybody ever did that, and they remarried someone who was divorced, they were excommunicated from that church. They forgot to read 1 Corinthians 7. that says that if, an unbe- if you become a believer, let's say that... Uh, well, Patricia, you asked a question. Let's say Rich and Patricia are unbelievers. They come to Concord Bible Church. They hear the glorious news. They just actually just get in the Word of God and there's a conviction. They come to faith. Oh no, only one of them comes to faith. And it's Rich. Trisha's like, I don't get... I'm, I'm, I'm picking on you because you can handle it. Rich can't, okay. <laughs> so, so let's say Rich comes to faith and Patricia doesn't. And she's like... There's a bunch of hooey. You're changing. This is not what I signed up for. I'm leaving you. Is he allowed with God's blessing to... And by the way, state of California, she just says, I'm divorcing you. What happens? He has no say. Is he allowed to divorce and remarry? According to 1 Corinthians 7, the instruction is clear. If an unbeliever leaves, Paul says, do not go after them. You are free. You are no longer in bondage. That word bondage is the same word that he uses if your partner dies. Alright? And he uses it in Romans and he uses it later in that passage. If your partner dies, you are no longer in bondage. You are no longer attached to that relationship. You are free. For some of you, this is brand new teaching. I can see it in your eyes. All right, so there you go. I'll take one more question. That's all we got time for. And it's not, don't ask me about politics. We are not doing that one. Take you straight to the cross. Take you straight to the cross. That the reality is this, is that sin, and you can go to multiple, go to Romans 5. Go to Romans 5 where it says because of one man sin entered into the world and because of that sin all of mankind have suffered through that. And then he does this great thing in writing, stylistic writing. He says, but through, a, not through one man Jesus Christ all of that penalty has been eliminated through the cross. Right? So there's the reality as to why we suffer. It's because of sin. You could also go to 1 Peter. The entire book of 1 Peter talks about suffering. Okay? But here's what I really take people to is the idea that Jesus, knowing that this world suffers, knowing that this is a sinful world, He inserted Himself in. So I would even start in Luke 2. 
right? But just go to the cross. Go to any of the Gospels. Go to the latter part of any of the Gospels and listen to what Jesus says. Listen to His statement in the Garden of Gethsemane where He says desperately, take this cup from Me. I don't want to have anything to do with it. That's the suffering, right? That's the suffering. But He chose to insert Himself into it. So the reality that God is good, He is good. The reality that God has waiting for us the, the lack of sin, the lack of suffering, the lack of effects of sin, all in, in the latter part, Revelation 21. There's other passages that can speak to that, but that's a great thing to see where there's no more suffering, there's no more tears, there's no more darkness. That's what God had set up. Go back to Genesis 1. God had set up a perfect situation between man and, and himself. And there was no sin, and he provided everything. There was no suffering, but it was when sin entered into the world by whose choice? God's or man's? Because of man's choice. But who God is in his character, he created a way out. Also found in Romans, actually Romans 5, the first few, first few verses, 1 through 3, talks about this idea of suffering and hope and perseverance as well. He gives us free will. But he's always there waiting and orchestrating Book of Jonah. Appointing. This is kind of fun. Want to do one more? Or do you want to leave and get lunch? <laughs> Let's go get lunch. Mike's buying. Okay. <laughs> My words, not God's. Yes, Julie. Oh, the Holy Trinity. I'm just going to take you to... I wouldn't sit too close. Bobby, you might want to move to the other aisle. We talked about this ahead of time. Uh, I would take you right there or Matthew 28. Um, and and it's, not, it's a cheap answer. It's a cheap answer. And here's why. Because Jesus Himself says, go make disciples, baptizing them in what? The name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Himself gave no preferential treatment to any of those, but gave preferential preferential treatment to all of them and then you could go to uh, Luke 12 where it's Jesus's words about blaspheming of the Holy Spirit that you can say what you want about the Son of Man but do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit speaking to his the Holy Spirit's divinity and and I'm not sure any of us have an issue with an issue with you know the Father being holy where we have a problem with this is going back to Exodus 20 okay with the, um, with the Ten Commandments, and, and even around that, right, is that the Lord your God is what? One. That's why we have a problem with this. Do you know in 2 Thessalonians 5, it talks about the fact that you have a body, a spirit, and a soul. Three parts inside of you. So it's not super hard to... It's just a conflict on the front side. So there's a way to, to realize that. Are we done? Is there a Bible verse about eating? There's a lot. There's a lot. Alright. Come back next week. We'll finish this up and do a lot more teaching on how to, how to understand the Word of God. But understand this. This is our closing thought. Is the Scripture... By the way, we study it with expectation that we're going to change and we're going to be better because of it and draw closer to God, that we will find God. Who would follow a treasure map with the expectation of never finding the treasure? 
Ben Gates' right-hand man, Riley. Okay. So here's our ask the questions, but I really want to leave you with this idea. It would be fruitless for me to take you through this exercise of the essentials of the Word of God for the believer and not ask you to contemplate the idea of not a cognition of Scripture, but the fact that it's alive. It's alive and it's active. That's what the Word of God can do for you. Let me close in prayer. Father, You have blessed us beyond all comparison with Your words. Even Scripture is self-evident as Peter and, and Paul say that all Scripture is breathed out by You. What we have is from You. It is inspired from You. And it is there to help us. It is there to equip us. It is there for us to navigate life. But most importantly, it is there for us to find You and to know You. Thank You for making that possible. Thank You for inspiring these words. Let them change our lives. To You be the glory, Father. And Lord, I ask that You bless our offerings today as those who have brought them, that they do so with a joyful manner. Multiply them for effectiveness and for Your use. To You be the glory, Father. Amen.